0: Listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry. Along with my guest for this episode, he's an accomplished writer and public speaker. Mr. Kevin Hoffman and I will be discussing race relations. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, as I do with all my episodes, I kind of uh, jump right into things. So um, in getting my audience familiar with you, I'm going to start off with uh, a little chat about, you know, what you're about and, and, uh, you know, what projects you're on and what you're doing right now.
1: Okay, so... What I do is I work with schools, K-12, through universities, and uh, organizations in the area of what most people call diversity and inclusion. Um, And so, yeah, my biggest challenge when I go into organizations or schools is to create an environment where the employee or the student with the Black Lives Matter t-shirt can coexist with the employee or the student with the Make America Great Again hat on. Um, and that is not always easy, but that's what we try to do.
0: Okay. Okay. So that, that sounds, um, not only challenging, but very relevant to the time we have in this country around the world. Um, from what I've read about you, you have some very personal experiences that will, uh, provide for not only great discussion, but great insight for our audience. So I'm going to start off with, uh one of the things that caught my attention, and that is that you have somewhere I read that your biological mother, when she was pregnant with you, went to her sister's to borrow money to have you aborted and here you are today. so why don't we start off by you telling the audience about your story?
1: Yeah, so back in early nineteen sixty seven in Detroit, uh my mother. My biological mother was married, so I had my biological mother's white, and she was married to a white guy, and uh, just had a really tough marriage with her husband. In early nineteen sixty seven, my mother had a relationship with a coworker, a black cook. She worked in the cafeteria at one of the plants in the Detroit area, and so she had an affair with a black cook. Uh, and went to her sister shortly after she found out she was pregnant and asked to borrow the money uh to have an abortion and reluctantly her sister gave her the money and my mother's intention was to travel from her sister's mobile home which was just outside Detroit to Flint Michigan to have an abortion and somewhere between Flint was an hour away from where my mother lived and somewhere between you know, where she lived in Flint, my mother decided to give birth to me. And and what that meant was she would have to go home and tell her white husband that she had an affair with a black man. Wow. And you just have to understand that in the late 60s, you know, a white woman being pregnant by a black man, you know, was a very shameful thing. And so, you know her husband could have responded to that news in a number of different ways. And I don't think many would have had much sympathy for my mother because she was, you know, this cheating, uh, wife. Um, but regardless of that, my mother went home, told her white husband, she was pregnant by a black guy and she gave birth to me in Detroit two weeks after the 1960 riots began. So I was born 53 years ago, actually in a time a lot like what we're going through now. I mean, the riots in Detroit started for the similar reasons that we're, you know, we're seeing protests now. Uh, The black community in in Detroit was sick and tired of the way they were being treated and, and brutalized by the police force. And we're going through that same thing right now.
0: Yes we are. Yes we are. I'm I'm curious um about the the interaction. Did your mother ever go into detail of how that conversation went with her husband at the time?
1: No, because I never met my mother. Um I found her back in 2009 or yeah, found out who she was in 2009. Unfortunately, she died in 2003. Yeah. So I missed her by 6 years. Interestingly enough, she had an affair with my father, the cook at work, and it was my understanding they both kind of just went their separate ways. He more than likely didn't even know about me, that she was pregnant, Um, and, you know, I found him a year or two ago, and he died within six weeks of my mother.
0: Oh, wow. So she gave you up, basically?
1: Yeah, at her, her husband's insistence, yeah, that he, that was basically the rule. You can have the kid, but you, yeah, we're going to put him up for adoption. So, yep. So she was, she was actually the one responsible for taking me from the hospital to my first and only foster home. And I met a good friend of my mother's, my biological mother, and she had shared with me that my mother had called her from the hospital right after she had me. And she asked her friend to come. And help her escort me to the foster home. So, this friend was in the car, and uh, my mother's friend was in the back seat with her husband, and my mother was in the passenger seat in the front while her uh, husband was driving. And the friend explained to me that she was trying to hold me in a way so that my mother could look in her rear view mirror or side mirror and see me in the back seat. Um, and the friend had shared that. We pulled up to the foster home. My mother walked in with me and then she said, my mother and her returned a couple of weeks later to drop off some diapers and t-shirts. And that was the last time we saw each other, which was, you know, 1967. Um, I was adopted by a white minister, his wife, and they have three biological children, so I'm the youngest in that family. Um, yeah, and I'm also the darkest in that family. I'm the only child of color in my adoptive family.
0: But now they're in the same time when um, your mother's husband, you know, told her that she had to get rid of you. So it's it is somewhat ironic, I guess, because he's a, a minister that you know he agreed to take in uh, you as as a biracial child and to raise you.
1: Right. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. And I think, yeah, my mom and dad were and a lot of people from, so I am a transracial adoptee and transracial adoptees are typically children of color adopted by white families or white couples. Um, and so we were probably the second wave of transracial adoption in the United States. Um, and so, yeah, my, I think my parents were just desperate to have another child. They always wanted four kids, so I kind of completed their plan of a family. And and I, they would agree with this that, you know, they agreed to, you know, a child of color, not really knowing what all that involved and not really knowing how the community, the church we belong to, and how family would respond to that. And they did. Yeah. The church family and community did not respond well to this white family adopted a child
0: of color. OK, so I guess that's that's um, you're, you're, you're kind of uh, in sync with my thoughts, because um, that's sort of a great segue to my next question that I've uh, when I read uh, up about you. And that is um, you woke up with a cross burning on your front lawn.
1: Yeah, so when I was, I was brought home in November of 1967. Uh, that next summer in 68, we woke up to a uh, cross, about a six-foot-high cross burning in our front yard. And my parents will tell you, they don't know if it was from the, that community. It could have been friends of theirs. It could have been someone from the church that my father, uh, that we belonged to as a family who objected to this. Yeah, and so that was the very real threat that summer morning in 1968. And that was a very real threat because you also have to understand that that was shortly after Martin Luther King had been assassinated, and it was the year that Bobby Kennedy had been killed. So there was some real issues going on in our country, and people were being killed and assassinated over some of these racial issues that were going on. So, yeah, it was very serious for us as a family. And we lived in a suburb of Detroit, Dearborn. And Dearborn has historically been known to be very (laughs) anti-color. And so back in the late 60s, they were considered what's called a closed community, which meant it was very obvious they did not want people of color inside the city limits. Now, the great news about that today is Dearborn, Michigan, they failed horribly at trying to keep that city white because now it has the largest muslim population in the world outside the middle east
0: wow so yeah
1: so it's an interesting story
0: yeah but so now there you know what's also interesting is that you said that that your uh, adoptive father was a minister and um you know so they put a burning cross on a minister's lawn you know that is um that in my mind at least speaks to a certain depth of racism that you know even crosses certain lines. Um, right, and and so uh, going up uh, uh, all those years until today, do you have other experiences that you can um, recall that are that were that critical or that? Um, impressive that 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 left you um a memory as such.
1: Yeah. So the the good and bad was that that community was not a community that I was going to be very comfortable in. That in Dearborn, and so after going through all that we went through with not only that community but the church, they tried to fire my father. Uh. When they would refer to me as the snotty-nosed black kid in the nursery, Um, all the women in the church would constantly go up to my mother and ask her, well, when he gets older and he starts to date, who's he going to date? And what they were really saying was, Lord, please don't let this black child grow up and date my white daughter. And so after those kind of experiences and people refusing service because my parents had me with them in in this small town, uh in Dearborn, Michigan, my father decided to accept a call to pastor a church in Detroit where the parsonage or the house that we that the pastor lived in was in a black neighborhood. So from age 3 to 18, I lived in Detroit. The schools I went to were like 95, 98% black. This was just after the riots in the late 60s. So all the white people were literally just <laughs> leaving in droves, leaving the city in droves. Um out to the the white suburbs. And so I grew up around kids that looked like me. They taught me what black was, they taught me what black culture was. And so I have this very unique experience to grow up in a black city but living in a white house. That first house that we lived in in Detroit was in a lower middle class black neighborhood. So all the kids in that neighborhood were black. Um and then at eight, my dad gets a promotion. Becomes the assistant to the bishop of Southeast Michigan. And we moved two miles away, still in Detroit, but now to an all white neighborhood. And eight years old is where I really start to remember. And I could feel what it was like to be different because I was now away from my black neighborhood. Um, I was fortunate that the schools that I went to were still, you know, largely black. So I still had that influence and that connection to you know, what I call my tribe, people that saw life as I did, experienced experience life as I did.
0: Okay, so then um, I'm assuming that it kind of became, life kind of became routine for you for a while, as it did for many of us who've grown up in, um, in, you know, in various environments. And then mm-hmm. we, we fast forward to today. And it is, you know, um, if you listen to some of my other episodes, especially my first episode when I started this podcast and, and where I'm from, um, I didn't, you know, there, there's a large, probably the first 15 going on, 16 years of my life had no clue what racism was.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And now we seem to be, yeah, further along, but there's a huge explosion now. And I think mm-hmm. the difference now, as opposed to what you experienced, is that when we look at certain um, protests and movements, they're what I've, I've constantly said on my shows, uh, made up of Generation Z. And I call Generation Z the current generation that, doesn't, that cares yeah. less about color. So when you look at the people protesting, they're from every race creed, and color. In, in, in terms of your experience from where you came to now, where do you think we stand today in this country on race and racism?
1: Uh, it's the worst that it's ever been since I've been alive. But we are at a point now where, you know, the civil rights leaders talked about this all the time, which was you have to come to a point where people are getting so sick and tired of the way things are that that forces change. So you saw that in the late 60s with the civil rights movement. And what gave rise to the civil rights movement was TV. It was the first time that white people saw the horrible treatment that black people were receiving by the police departments, by the dogs that they sicked on them, by the fire hoses they shot at them. That was the first time that a large portion of white America got to see what we were going through. And that caused them to get involved in change. Today, it's the same thing. It's now just with the cell phones. And so what everybody, what a lot of people would say is, it's blowing up like never before. That really isn't true. It's always been there. It just seems like it's blowing up because everybody's recording it. And so, like I said, it's far worse than whenever I grew up because you have a leader of a country telling you it's okay to treat people of color and women and, and gay people differently. And he's given a lot of people license to say and do some horrible things, which before him, they would have said it amongst themselves in their homes, but not publicly. And he has given them that license to do this. And we're all paying for it. And man, I'm hoping <laughs> in a couple months we're we're done with this experiment.
0: So so this let's does
1: not be good for anybody.
0: So let's revisit something that you just said for a moment. And I I've pondered this for a while. When we say it's worse than it's ever been before, when I think about that, I you know in, in my mind, I think that from the experiences I've gone through in my life. That it is not necessarily worse; it is visible, because you know. Um, I remember, um, as I think back about different different things I witnessed, and I think from what we've seen in the last over the last uh, four years or whatever, is that, like you said, people now feel they have a license to speak. You know what their thoughts have been all this time you know it's 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 sort of uh you know they were they were they didn't they didn't become racist overnight in the last 4 years you know these people have been uh there's a number of things i think about one like you said um before the cell phone um you know and and the 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 you know, i was going to say the good cell phones um people were you know, experiencing the same racism, and you know it. It 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 was so normal for simple things like uh, you know getting pulled over or going to a to a certain neighborhood. You know that you know, but without it being recorded, without there being a record, you know, it, it was something that you'd come home and tell your family or someone. You won't believe what happened to me today, but the world didn't hear about it. And so, right, right. You know, um, and and I think for me, why I'm saying this in this manner is because. That's the part I find a bit scary, and that is that I I, I have gotten to a point in, in, in to a certain extent where I've lost my trust in a lot of the relationships that I've that I've known for you know several years because I I kind of see things on social media that people that I know and that I've. growing close to they make certain comments that make you stop dead in your trap because you know who all of a sudden I'm looking at someone I've known for 20 years and saying, who are you? Right. So, you know, it's, 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 um, it's, it, it's been there. It's just like you said, you know, they've got a license now to, to, um, you know, publicly, uh, exhibit how they feel without uh consequence in many cases until people have said enough is enough but yet in even in this climate we're still every other day we're right. still seeing it happening it's like you've got people who and, and again that becomes scary too as who we are as people because now you've got this magnifying glass on the situation I think you have the population that they don't care. They are who they are and they feel that they have this opportunity to speak and they're going to continue or or to act or behave in a certain manner. Then you have the people who you'll never be sure about because, you know, they might have become a bit emboldened, but with all the media coverage and everything else, they might have just retreated back to where they were. And so they continue to be a mystery to us because when we speak to them as friends or coworkers or whatever, we still are completely unaware of how they truly feel about us. And these are just a few of the things that I think about because when I, you know, what I'm going to ask you next is, you know, in your opinion, how do we get better? But it is, it is more of a mystery to me because of all these unknowns and because you know, you, you can't see the cars that, that are being dealt. They're not turned face up. So in your opinion, how did we get better?
1: I think, well, let me correct something I said. I think it's been worse. It's worse than it's ever been since I've been around. I do believe that. But I also believe we had to get to this point for real change to happen. And so almost like clockwork, you can set your watch to when we've had enough in the United States. So it happened in the late sixties with all the riots, not only in Detroit, but out West. And then it happened again in 93 with Rodney King. And then it happened again in 2014 uh, with Ferguson. And so you can almost say every 20 to 25 years, this same issue is going to happen until we've really addressed it. But I've never since I've been alive, heard mayors come out and disavow their police departments like I saw with George Floyd. I've never seen police chiefs speak badly about their officers publicly. And so I'm encouraged with that. And sometimes we saw it when Obama was in office that the response to that big, huge change was who we voted in next. And I think you're going to see that again in November, which is, especially with what happened yesterday in Kamala Harris, the hope that that gave to so many people will outweigh what I hope is a minority in this country that want things the way they are now. And I think it takes us to go through a lot of junk to get to real change. And I'm encouraged because I think we're about to see real change. Because I think finally enough people have said this is intolerable and we can't deal with this anymore, and some significant change has to happen.
0: But you know the other scary part about that is people. It, it, it's amazing that I see so many, and I, and it's it's friends of mine, so they're people that I've known you know many many mm-hmm. years, and it's it's a bit scary because I saw someone make reference to the protests in Oregon. And I know there was looting and I, and, and, you know, the thing about looting is even when I first heard about the looting, et cetera, I kind of had one opinion of it. Like, well, you know, without understanding the, the entire dynamic of of, of why that's happening and, and what's leading to it and all the aspects of it, and then understanding and differentiating between people who take advantage of a situation and people who are actually making a statement. But, irrespective of this person said, "Oh, why is this still going on in Portland? They just need to take a bomb and throw it to all in you know in, in into into where the you know the rioters are and that statement I'm not sure if they said bomb or explosive whatever they said it was something to like kind of get rid of the situation in a in a in a permanent manner in other words the 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 their impression of these people are they're all bad and they're rioting they're looting and just wipe them out. And, yeah. you know, I've learned to think deeper about these things because this whole dynamic of race is a lot deeper and you can't just look at it as a surface issue. Right. Um. And and so what I saw from that person was who lives in a an affluent neighborhood, a somewhat affluent neighborhood, and, and I think is sheltered and, and shielded from... The reality of the of, you know of, of what black and brown people face, um, is that their disgust was completely based on their ignorance of what the whole issue is, of what black yeah. and brown people have faced, of 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 understanding. Like I said, two things. Maybe there's some looters there who are just, and I've heard about this, who kind of follow movements around the around the country and take advantage of the environment. And then there are those who are expressing anger in a manner that, that you know the intent is to make somebody listen because they're tired. Yeah. And you know, this yeah. is this is this is um a continuous thing, like I said, because you would think that from George Floyd to now that even if you were in that space of being someone who was, you know, um who is a lifelong racist against black and brown people? That you would sort of uh, quell your your need to behave in that manner in the midst of this storm, but it's still happening. And I and I I I can't even try to get into the minds of the people who continue to behave and conduct themselves in this manner. Uh, what is the woman Brianna Taylor? Um, yeah, you know I, I, I don't understand it. It's like. When do you get to the point that there's so many factors here, the factor of, you know, black, brown, green, blue, red, whatever, this is not, when you look at another person, that's the only difference you see. They're identical to you other than the color of their skin. So I don't know if it's ever happened in history. Maybe it has, but if there are ever twins from, you know, that were born and one is black and one is white, which it probably has happened, you know, so many weird things have happened, then mm-hmm. that's kind of the you know the where where it is, because this is another human being with and the only differentiation is the color of your skin. And yet they feel that, you know, they, they 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 take lives without without the care. They they um I know in some instances if you were speaking specifically about law enforcement, um I've heard, you know, police officers, and I know many police officers, and I'll say this again, I know some really good police officers who are who are really out there doing a job. In a, you know, in, in a manner that, that's proactive and making a difference. And you've seen some of them kneel and these kinds of things and get a lot of flack from their own departments, you know, for doing it. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult to understand. Even within the police departments, I've heard police officers say they deal with that racism within the department. So it, it, it's such a layered issue and 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 it's more much more complicated, and I don't understand the people who will just look from their bubbles and just condemn a whole race without even making an effort to understand what it's like to stand on the other side of the fence.
1: And I, but I think it comes down to kind of what you said. I mean, you could take, and I had that. So if you look at me growing up in Detroit, black kid. But then I have brothers, two white brothers who grew up in Detroit, and our experience in life were totally different. Like they don't have, they don't, they didn't have a system that was set up to convince everybody that people like me were there to hurt you or there was something bad about me so that just the mere sight of my skin color causes a response in people that they're not even aware of. And as a person of color, because you've seen it for so many, so many years, you pick it up pretty easily. So you notice when you walk into a room and the woman who clutches her purse, and although it's so subtle that the average person wouldn't notice it, you notice that. And it's just because our experiences are so different. Our life experiences are different. So that's what's so frustrating as a person of color is when I tell people, like we've said this for so many years. You know, we said it with Trevon, we said it with uh, Tamir, we said it with Oscar, we said it with John, we said it with all these young black lives. Man, just stop killing us. I mean, there's this great video out there, if you haven't seen it, by this activist. She actually reminds me a lot of uh, Sister Soldier from back in the 80s. But black activist, her name is Kimberly Jones. And she talks about what you were saying, which is, don't look at the what, look at the why. So she was saying, you know, everyone wants to ask me, why are you burning down your city? (laughs) And she was saying, how come you never asked me why we're to this point where people are so desperate that they feel their only chance is to take advantage of this protest and go loot a store? Like, how come we're not looking at, like you said, these systemic problems that we've dealt with for decades? that haven't changed. Yeah. And that's what's frustrating is how can people, more people can't compassionately look at that and say like Martin Luther King said, who, and we have to remind people that Martin Luther King was an outlaw back in the late sixties. He's not the beloved guy that everybody says he is today. I mean, <laughs> the FBI followed him. I mean, there were so many things that people forget. And I think, 30 years from now, we'll be saying the same thing about Kaepernick. Yes. Kaepernick is our Muhammad Ali. He is our Martin Luther King, where in the moment, so many people would say he was bad. 30 years from now, you'll see the change came about because this one football player decided to just quietly kneel on on the sideline. Um, And so, yeah, it's just interesting what we all remember of history and I think it's, in, it's important that those, like you said, that may be sheltered, if you can just get it in your head that the world, everyone doesn't experience the world like you. And so when someone comes to you and says, yeah, I'm being victimized, why can't you just have compassion and say, that's horrible, how can we change it? And instead of, no, you got that wrong, that's so wrong, you saw it wrong. And you're talking to a racist people that has had centuries. Of training and what to see when it comes to race and racism, we know what it is and what it isn't.
0: Yeah, I, I chuckled too when you talked about walking in the room because, in my first episode, my first ever episode of my on my podcast, I talked about asking a woman downtown Manhattan for directions and she clutched her purse and she ran, she physically yep. ran. So that, yes, you know that that is that is um that is something I experienced myself firsthand, and then um. Leading off of what you were just saying at the end there. So I also want to speak a moment on the people who keep saying all lives matter. Yeah. And I try so hard to, and I, I myself, I admit, in, you know, in the beginning, when I first heard it, I'm like, okay, all lives matter. And, you know, someone kind of, you know, um, spoke to me and said, hey, 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 you need to think more about that. And I did. And I remember having a discussion um, with my wife about it. And I was joking around with her because you know, I'm just teasing her. And she said something to me that that day that made me say, that's the end of that. Not only would I never say that, you know, even joking anymore, but the, you know what she said to me was, was very powerful. She said, you know, I know you're joking, but this all lives matter thing. You need to think about it in this way. And I have kids. Imagine you're a parent at a funeral for your child.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: And you want to say, uh, my child was this and my child's that. And my child was special. And someone grabbed the mic from you at the funeral and said, well, all children are special. You know, and then I, then I not only got it, but then I say, you know what, that's the exact argument I will use to anyone else because it, it it should be deep enough to tug at their heart and to make them, at least when they leave my presence, think about what they're saying. I know that some people who say all lives matter are so separated and cut off from the reality of of what we experience that they are not saying it in a manner, in in a way to condemn because they just simply haven't given it any thought. You know, they're saying, well, yeah, your life matters and my life matters, so all that, you know, and they cannot, um, they're they're sort of naive to it. They really and truly cannot um, lend any kind of um, depth to the conversation because they have no clue what we're talking about. Right. And then you have the next set of the population who say it because they're rationalizing their own behavior. They're you know they're 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 that that's their methodology to denial of who they are and how they are. And so, you know, in a time when we are at a pivotal moment in history, and I say that because um the one of the last things I'm gonna go into in this conversation that I'm leading there is that when I look at the Black Lives Matter. Organization and I look at the Black Lives Matter movement. And I separate the two because they are two different things. Um, One's the organization that was specifically uh, created to deal with the police um, issues, and the other one is just a movement that has been triggered around the world. A Black Lives Matter. I have never seen such an orchestrated movement that when I looked at um, on a map about a week or two ago, and I typed in, I Googled George Floyd protests. And there were red dots on the world map of where these things were going on. There was Germany, there was France, there's the Caribbean, it's everywhere. And and I, I said a couple of things. First of all, it gave me hope. It gave me hope that, you know, we don't go back to that place where between the Trayvon Martin and the next uh, yeah, instance that exactly. we just got quiet and peaceful and, you know, kind of, yep. and, you know, it, it, and, and that's one of the reasons too, that I, that I have this podcast, not because and, I, and my audience is made up of all race, creeds and colors because I know many of them, but it is because of awareness it is because generation Z as it stands right now is made up of every race, creed, and color. That's simply saying you cannot take one race from among us and treat them like this anymore they need right. to and so i'm hoping that this black lives matter movement is not only that powerful not only sustained but even ex- grows exponentially to the point that it becomes not only the norm around the world but the 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 situations and the people that push back against it will be in such a minority that their right. their view will cease to exist in, in in any impactful way, what is your feeling about the Black Lives Matter movement, and you know, and how how it has impacted our society today?
1: Yeah, I think I'm very proud of the work that they've done and they're doing. <laughs> um, because you're right, it it will take something that big to create real change. Um. And so, yeah, I'm excited about the possibility of change, like I said, in a way that I've never seen it before. Um, the way that the younger generation is organizing is pretty impressive through how you know through social media, um, yeah, they're changing the game, which is exciting, which I mean, so you know they're they're you know in large cities. These groups of kids can have thousands of people <laughs> at one location in a matter of hours. That's impressive, and so that gives me hope: is that I think we're turning it over to a generation who agrees that we can't keep going on like this. I mean, we're yeah, we're just kind of killing each other. You know, and so they, I think
0: this generation, I think too, has the tools that other generations didn't exactly. have. You know, they have the. Yep, exactly. It's like the perfect storm. It's 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 a time yeah. when. Um, if they maximize what they have, they can be most impactful, even beyond. I mean, not to nev- not to ever overshadow people like you know, like Martin Luther King, but they can go beyond. They can, they can actually finally bring out the true meaning in reality of "I have a dream." Yeah, you know, they 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 can they can finish his dream and 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 in a way that those words uttered so many years ago will 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 have a a meaning that has find they've, they've they've reached a point of completion where the dream is fulfilled exactly so um as 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 i said as i get ready to wrap this up i've got one last question for you that i'd like you to leave your thoughts uh with my audience and that is simply well, two things um, and I'm going to switch the order of them around. first, I'm going to ask you to you know tell the audience what are you next what are you working on next?
1: So there's a couple of things. so I'm actually uh, in the process of putting a podcast together, which is going to be called Race, Rage and Reconciliation," which does a lot of what we've talked about tonight, which is just the why's behind the what? Um, and then to just give hope to, you know, the change that I think is about to come. So that's the biggest thing I'm working on. Uh, and then I go around and I speak to, like I said, organizations and schools, um, and just really, it's kind of a, it took me a while to figure this out, but it's kind of a, it's something I do in honor of, you know, my white mother who took a risk to have me and so since, you know, I'm made up of both races that can't seem to figure out how to get along, you know, part of, you know, the mission that I've taken on in life is to to help in this conversation and try and figure it out. Um, and so I spent the last 10 years at least doing that um, and we will continue to do that. And like I said, I'm starting this podcast, which I'm going to be excited about. And that's really it.
0: Um so when you start and, that podcast, I I'm gonna say it in front of my audience now, so I'm gonna put you on the spot and hope that you come back on the show and tell us about it. And yeah, we can have this continued conversation because this is the time for these conversations is now. And so yeah. I'm inviting you back when you have already all set up and, and um you know, they can hear more about you know where you are once you get there. And okay, so great. that. You, when you leave the show with this tell everyone from where Kevin Hoffman started to where you are now how do we get better
1: uh, it means having uncomfortable conversations and this is tough for for white people quite honestly because it's been So usually what happens is we go through this, you know, big event happens. Everybody wants to do something to change things. Like you said, we've seen it with Trayvon. We've seen it with Tamir. Everyone gets excited for a little while, and then we all go back to living life. Hopefully, we'll have these real conversations. And what white people have to understand is in these real conversations, the first part of those conversations is really just listening because we have Very rarely do people of color get to express our experiences and how it made us feel to a point where people listen. And so white people have to understand, in this conversation of race, the initial conversations, you're not going to say a whole lot because there's so much built in us that we've got to get out for health reasons, for us, and it's important for you to understand the experience that we've gone through, so you can understand how to help us. Also, white people have to understand you may not be the person in the front of the line. You can come alongside great groups like Black Lives Matter, but you may not be out in the forefront, and that's okay. We need you by us, but we don't need you running it. <laughs> and so, a lot of white people have to understand that it may mean you take a back seat. And then the last way that people can help. And I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out, but is if you truly want to help in this movement, then do your homework. Do your research on the history that we've all been told. A lot of our American history, we've all been told a whole lot of lies. So it means we all got to kind of go learn the real history. Um, yeah. And then move on from there. <laughs> uh yeah, and and, it, and it's not it's not peop- it's not our job as people of color to teach white people history. We've got Google. You've got the Internet. You need to go and research that and understand why there's so much animosity between the races and then also understand we've all kind of been played. You know, this system has been set up to pit us against each other. And yeah, we need to be smarter and not keep falling into that, too.
0: Great, great, great. So this was really great. Um, I think my audience will enjoy it. I surely did. And once again, I want to say thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and being a guest on the show and um, wishing you great luck with setting up your podcast and expecting you to be back here so we can continue the conversation. But for now, I want to say thank you for coming on the show and uh, wishing you a good evening and continued success.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You're
0: welcome. I want to say a very, very special thank you to my guest for this episode, Mr. Kevin Hoffman. Also want to say thank you to my listeners as usual, and thank you for your support. You can continue to listen to every episode of my podcast on your favorite app, or you can head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net, where you can leave messages and get more in-depth information about the guests. If you'd like to send me a message via email, or if you'd like to request to be on the show, you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That d c a s t. -T 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 at 247realtalk.net until the next time take care of yourselves and each other